Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your destination for African business made simple. My name is Muriwa Gabaza, and for today, we do get into a conversation um, around uh, building wealth, um, you know, in uh, very tough uh, economic times, um, you know, the wealth creation and uh, wealth preservation um, conversation is a very important one. But, you know, when we use that word conversation, that's what we want to hit on for today what types of conversations are we having about money um you know whether it's uh between friends whether it's between families uh whether it's between couples whatever it is what conversations are we having um you know about money what is the quality um of these conversations i'm actually passionate you know quite a bit myself um you know to say that as a society we really do need uh, to have better quality conversations about money, um, about investing, about saving, um, you know, about wealth creation. And I'm glad that the team um, over at Citadel um, is also to, has, has taken this on as something that, uh, you know, they want to, 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 to champion. Um, so for today, we are going to be chatting with Daryl Coker, who is an advisory partner over at uh, Citadel. Um, Daryl, greetings to you today. Uh, good, good day uh, to everyone, um, your listeners, Madiwa, um, at Business Day, and I'm, I'm really happy to be with you guys today. Now, thank you so much for being with us, uh, Daryl. I think maybe a good place for us to start before getting into um, the wealth types of conversations. Um, Citadel, maybe you could give us a little bit of insight into um, you know what Citadel does. I'm quite aware um, I've interacted with a couple of your your colleagues um, in the past, uh, but you know, for those that may not know, what's the elevator pitch on Citadel and your particular role at the at the at the firm? Yeah, thanks, Madiwa. Um, yeah, I'm an advisory partner here. Um, I've been at Citadel uh, almost 17 years now. Um, in fact, uh, uh, our, at our partner level, um, tenure is something that's uh, that's quite pride prided on here. So a lot of our partners have been around a, a long period of time, but. Yeah, you know, in essence, we're a we're a wealth management business. We've been around about thirty odd years, and generally, what we do is we engage with people um, that are financially like-minded, uh, that want to take their finances seriously. And what we do with them is we actually try and build some financial planning scenarios, um, and and then walk a journey with them as we head down the road to hopefully getting them to a point of financial independence over time. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of the business. Um, you know, that's underpinned by things like fiduciary planning, you know, wills and estate planning. Um, you know, trusts um, locally and offshore, and just general structuring that goes on uh, in respect of a person's uh, journey that they walk over time as they head uh, towards that infamous retirement age and financial independence. And if I may ask, you know, maybe as a follow-up to that, uh, typically, you know, what is the profile of a Citadel, you know, type of client? Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's it's interesting point about our, our sort of target market. I mean, we're generally working in the professional space. Um, we, we started out with a joint venture with one of the audit firms way back when, and then when conflict of interest came in, um, you know, we kind of split from that. But in essence, uh, we really try to focus on the uh, uh, on, on professionals, uh, helping them along the way. We find that professional people work extremely hard and don't have much time to look after their own finances. So we kind of become a kind of a non-exec FD of their lives uh, while they're spending sort of 18, 20 hours at the office. They're needing someone to take care of their personal finances. And that's kind of where we step in. 
All right. So you heard me saying at the beginning, you know, um, that I'm quite passionate about um, the converse to say that we must have better quality conversations uh, about money in our society. Um, and that's an assumption that I'm that I'm making, and I'm hoping uh, to get your take. You know, someone who is a professional, in, you know, in the in this space, um, are people having you know the poor quality conversations around money? Um, you know that I have led with. You know, that's the assumption that I make talking to yeah. people. Um, you know, talking to colleagues, friends, family members. You really get a sense that people aren't comfortable to talk about money and when money is brought up it's an awkward topic people aren't willing to talk details they aren't willing to get into you know the nuts and bolts about it um i think covid19 um exposed this quite a bit because you had a lot of family members getting into either financial difficulty inability to work or passing on and then the actual financial reality in the family becomes exposed yet you know, it would have been better had there been a conversation. Am I making too much, you know, of 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 that, uh, or is that the reality on the ground? Yeah, Madiba. I mean, you make some great points there. I mean, the conversations don't happen. Um, we find the conversations that do happen are, are are the bragging conversations. So you spoke about people talking amongst friends and colleagues. You know, the only time that people end up having financial conversations with friends and colleagues is around the bra when they've kind of bought Nuspass at, at 20 Rand and it's it's now flying through the roof and, and they look like a real hero, you know? So uh, besides that, they won't tell you that they, you know, they bought another stock at 200 Rand and it's now worth uh, 10 cents, um, you know? So so those are the kind of conversations that are, are generally had. But, you know, for me, um, there's a number of reasons why these conversations don't happen. Um, and, and generally, the generation above us, um, and to a large extent, kind of my generation and, and a kind of sort of, you know, sort of um, midlife, I guess, you know, we were always brought up with the view that you don't talk about your money to anyone, you know, whether it's your family um, you know your kids. You know you don't you don't share your you don't share your thoughts because it's your money and it's a very private kind of uh, conversation. So so often we didn't share that kind of information, which is which is quite interesting. The the, the second point why people don't uh, don't share is that um, and we come across this a fair amount is that you end up in a situation where you're talking to um, you know a couple that have done really really well. They've accumulated wealth over time, um, and and they're very scared to tell their young adult children or their late teenage children that they've got all this money because they sometimes feel that, you know, well, you know, I worked so hard to to get my wealth um, to where it is. I don't want to tell my kids I've got all this money. And then they end up kind of just going and sit on the beach, you know, for seven days a week because they know they're going to at some point inherit all these gazillions of rands and they'll be able to live a lifestyle, um, you know, that that they can be sort of, you know, happy with, but actually not worked for. So we do find a lot of people struggling with when to tell their children about their wealth you know especially if they've got lots of wealth so that that is a bit of a hurdle and 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 i guess you know i'm not entirely sure what the right answer there is uh, in respect of when to do it but it's an important conversation that needs to happen between parents and kids uh, of the wealthy because that wealth transfer is going to happen and in in order to protect your wealth you need to have made sure that that the kids that are receiving the wealth have got the right skills and i'll touch on that a, a little bit later as well and then the third reason why you know people don't talk about their wealth is because people that haven't planned properly, 
and aren't in a financial position are obviously sometimes embarrassed that they haven't taken their their you know finances too seriously and they are in a position where where there's nothing to kind of shout about and often the conversations that get passed around between spouses and and kids in that scenario are negative ones because it's it's always the conversation about why are you spending so much? You should be spending less. Why did you buy this? We don't need this. It's a want, uh, uh, you know, not a need. And and so those conversations become quite negative and and quite um, sort of the bigger scheme of things. You know, people end up in a situation where they don't want to have those conversations because they're negative. So it's not really just a kind of a one size fits all. I think there's a number of different reasons why you know people haven't had these conversations you know, with family members or friends um, along the way. And they kind of just, you know, sort of keep to themselves, hoping that that everything will be all right. Us as professional advisors, we sometimes, you know, I often sit with a new client and I say, listen, the quality of advice I can give give you is based on the ability for you to share and have a conversation with me around how much you've got and where it sits and what it looks like. And I often sit with clients and I say to them, have you told me everything? Yes, yes, yes. I've told you everything. And you end up in a situation where you build a, a plan for a client and they say, oh, yeah, didn't tell you about X amount I've got sitting in in this fund. And I'm saying, well, that you know impacts the conversations quite quite heavily with the professional advisor. So, yeah, it's not just family and friends. It's, you know, um, people need to share. And I wouldn't certainly go around the office <laughs> telling everyone about, you know, sort of my financial position. But certainly at strategic times with strategic role players, one needs to be very clear and careful about the conversations you have with those people. Now, most certainly you do. And I think that uh, that attitude is actually quite pervasive. And I've actually thought about it quite a bit because in addition to some of the reasons that you've uh, that you've given, I think some of our attitudes around money are actually quite entrenched. Um, you know, when you look at uh, certain uh, certain spaces, take the workplace for example. Um, in many in many corporate environments, and I would imagine even you know some of the small to medium environments as well, um, employees are sort of barred contractually. You know, not to they aren't allowed in essence to discuss remuneration to discuss their packages um of course people you know will have you know some people will you know some make some of those disclosures maybe to workmates and and friends you know maybe on a hush hush or down low level but um on an open level it's usually uh not allowed and it's literally written um you know into some people's contracts that uh, you know you literally have an NDA around how much you're being paid and i think all of those different attitudes uh work to what you call this work to reinforce um that uh, you know that attitude where people are you know do keep you know, issues around money you know, close to their chest. And I guess that then manifests itself, um, you know, to some extent, like what you said just now, you're in a professional setting, you've hired someone to sort out your finances, but you're still even unsure whether the person that you are paying to handle your finances should know about your finances. Yeah, that's spot on. I mean, that's a common thread that we see. I mean, even you know, laugh at me, even some of the professional clients we see whose who's wives um, or husbands, because let's be politically correct here, you know, are stay at home. Um, even even they are sometimes reluctant to disclose the level of their wealth to their partners um, because their fear of, 
of well, you know what, I can go spend, um, and you know I can I can you know I can go overseas uh, three times a year or twice a year or whatever the case might be. So many of them uh, do become very very closed in um, with regards to um, these these financial conversations that that happen. So some some of the conversations that do happen are very superficial and at a very high level. But you know. Um, Yes, and we do get clients where we see husband and wife together and everything's disclosed and it's it's really a great and a very healthy environment to be in. Um, but uh, there are certain times where where spouses don't generally pass information uh, amongst each other. And, yeah, that can be dangerous with regards to overall planning, to be fair. Um, so, yeah, it's not ideal. No, it's certainly not ideal. I think, you know, for now, we'll put this one to rest. I do have one more point I want to ask, but I'll ask it, you know, towards the end. Um, when it comes to right now, um, I guess your push at the moment, um, how do you think we can, I guess, improve um, some of uh, the discussions that are being had? Um, I guess, what's the advice? Because it would be easy for us to simply just say, guys, just be more open about your money. Right, but we <laughs> we know that that's not going to just happen overnight. Um, it's probably needs to be gradual um, because, as you as you articulated, there's a whole uh, can I call it a whole generational mindset that's you know steeped you know in yeah. this uh, I guess financial secrecy and all of that, and we have to sort of unlearn. Um, what are essentially entrenched behaviors? So you know, if we're piece, if we are going to dismantle it piece by piece, uh, what's a, what's your take? Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's a great question, Mudiwa. I mean, for me, bef- before I go straight into that, you know, it's quite bizarre. You know, there's a wealth generation, um, people that have made a lot of money um, that are close to retirement and heading towards sort of our, our sunset years. We can we can call it that. They're going to be passing on some of their biggest assets to their children, okay? And yet they've taught their children everything about life when they've walked a journey with them over time. They've taught them how to ride a bicycle. They've taught them how to swim. They've taught them how to read and write to a certain extent. Um, You know, they've sent them to a good school to make sure that they get all the right skills. But at no point have they ever spoken to them about the biggest asset that will be transferred to them, and that's the money. I mean, it's just so bizarre that you end up in a situation where – our children or, or people that receive inheritance, a lot of them don't have the skills to actually manage that money, not because they're not smart enough to manage it, because they've just never been taught the right way to do it. And and so because of that closed generation, that skill set is not passed down from one generation to the next. And in fact, I would argue, even if those skills are taught, the modern way of money, e-wallet and crypto and those kind of things are, are things which our parents don't really understand either. So. In spite of them maybe teaching you how to budget and how to sort of, you know, manage money to a certain extent, money has changed. And the way we deal with money has changed. And it's important for people to keep upskilling themselves, you know, as long as they got the fundamental basics, they can keep upskilling themselves with regards to the kind of new way of money. Okay. I mean, to be honest, I can't remember when last I sort of went to an ATM and drew money or, you know, sort of you just tap your card and off you go kind of thing, you know. So it's a very, very different world. Um, to you know, to my parents that were writing our checks um, for you know to 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 cash to pass money around from one place to another. But getting back to your your point there, I mean, yeah, it's it's a very it's a very interesting world. And my answer to that, the very short answer, is to start as early as possible 
educating and getting your family and your children into money and understanding money from a very early age. You can actually start from the age of seven or eight, um, as long as it's an age-appropriate skill that you're teaching them. You know, you could actually start, you know, at seven or eight, you know, you could set up, a, you know, you could let them do some chores around the house, earn some money. Um, the better they do the chores, the more you could pay them. Um, and then potentially set up something like a tuck shop at home where they could buy, you know, um, a packet of chips or or chocolates. And if, if you're that anti-sugar person, maybe you can set up a fruit store at home, you know, and and and, and get them to buy something with the money that they've earned, you know, um, you know. Those kind of children at age seven or eight are quite visual. You know, they will work well with notes and coins and, and they'll get a feel for kind of what it means to earn something, pay pay something and get something in return. So, you know, there's there's certainly different ways in which you can you can start the conversations with your children and with the next generation to make sure that they're going to be equipped. And of course, as I said, you need to make it age appropriate. So as you move through the years, you know, when once the children get to primary school and things like that, you know, playing games like Monopoly or Money Match Cafe or, you know, uh, things like the Entrepreneur Day at school, you know, those are great opportunities to teach children about money and about financial concepts and strategies. Um, and really, you can make it quite enjoyable. I know some people with board games get quite competitive and 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 it doesn't become enjoyable. But in the main, you really have enough tools there, you know, to 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 show them, um, you know, what what that kind of thing looks like. In early primary school years, you can also encourage them to open a bank account and with the, the work that they do around the house, the chores, et cetera, you know, to see that bank account grow and and let them go identify something at the shop that they potentially want to buy and say, okay, well, it costs 100 rand. You know, these are the level of chores you're going to be able to have to do to get there. Get them to think about how much I need to work to 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 get that, to get that sort of toy or whatever it is at the end of the day, because that will allow them the understanding that, you know, it's not, it just doesn't come off the shelf. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, do I really want it after working so hard? Is that toy really, really that important? You know, as you head into your kind of early teens, um, you know, there we, we, we encourage people to, you know, to uh, look at something, some things like compounding interest, you know, uh, your grade eights and nines are learning that in maths, you can, you can show them that in their bank accounts. You can also talk to them about contracts, you know, things like a cell phone contract. And, you know, do you really own that phone or is it owned by the, the service provider until you've paid or paid it off, you know? Um, and things like a concept of that and negotiating, you know, some sort of discounts and stuff when they go shopping. You know, those are good early teen skills that that one could learn. Um, you know, a lot of the early teens we deal with are, are going to sort of fancy dances and things like that. You know, you know, you can talk to them. What does it you know, suit cost or what does a dress cost? What does jewelry cost? You know, um, where does, you know, how much is that in the bigger scheme of things? So it's really literally helping them along the way from an early age, helping to them to understand, um, you know, money. And then of course, as they get to their late teens, early adulthood, you can really start, you know, digging some good concepts into them. Things like income tax that they will learn about pretty soon after that, you know, understanding the cost of living, uh, you know, discussing credit cards and debt management, and building a good credit score, those are important concepts to teach in the late teens and early adulthood. And then, yeah, help them learn to balance sort of instant gratification with, with long-term reward. Those are all good skills to kind of pass along. But, you know, all of these things I've, I've mentioned, Yamadiwa, are all really positive interactions. You know, we find a lot of conversations being negative about money. And that's the that's a massive problem because then, as I've mentioned before, people don't want to talk about money because it's negative. 
So if you can make these kind of, you know, once a month finance meetings around the dining room table, you know, after dinner, you know, not a bad idea to talk through this kind of stuff and, and get them interested. You know, I'll never forget my one son. Um, I got him buying some stocks and shares with some pocket money that I'd given my kids. And he he bought he bought the company that um that my wife worked for. She works for a listed company and and and, and he bought that stock and and boy, was she in for a hard time, boy, because if she didn't work hard enough, he was saying, Hey, I'm a shareholder here. Mom, you better get back to work, you know. <laughs> I need the dividend, you know. So the reality just creates different kind of dynamics in your family. And and um look, I won't tell you what the answer was, but <laughs> at the end of the day, it's just you know, those little things that you can actually do at home that are very simple that can allow an appreciation for money. And I know us as parents don't always have these skills, but it's worth just trying to listen to podcasts like this or do some investigating to try and get those skills because it's a, it's a massive skill that never gets passed around because we we hold our cards too close to our chest. Um, it's, a, it's very interesting that you say that, uh, Daryl, because uh, there's a video that I think uh, your company put out um, you know, as part of this, um, you know, these conversations um, that Citadel put out. And I remember one of the young ladies say, is saying something to her grandmother, which stuck to me because I think that's the feeling around, uh, that's the feeling um, amongst millennials, at least, you know, to say that the education system um, has been so good, you know, um, especially if, you know, depending on, uh, you know, where you went to school, especially if you've completed um, your education, you have a degree and all that. The education system has done a very good job of training you for a particular vocation, how to think critically, analysis, you know, all of that. Um, and it equips you with a lot of life skills. But the one that's always lacking um, is, um, and this is what the young lady says, to say that um, I was well equipped by the education system in almost every area of my life except um, how to uh, manage my own finances. You do things like accounting and financial management and you learn um, how to account for money um, in a, uh, a company's balance sheet, understanding inflows and outflows. But for yourself, that is a skill that is, uh, you know, quite lacking, um, you know, in how uh, the education system has gone about, um, you know, teaching us. And I guess one of the questions I'm, I'm keen to get your take on, because um, all the advice that you've just given and you and I like the fact that you broke it down according to those different age groups, you know, starting as early as seven or eight years old and then moving through the primary school years, the teenage years and and uh, your late teens and all of that. You have uh, the way that it has been framed has sort of uh, put responsibility, um, you know, on the family unit. You know, is that where the bug stops, or do you think, yeah, you know, some of these things can be widened out, you know, beyond just the family structure, you know, into you know other structures such as the education system, for example. Yeah, do I mean that's. We're going to get into trouble here, I can tell you now. But, <laughs> you know, I, before my life as, in, in, as an advisory partner here at Citadel, I actually was a school teacher for nine years. Um, and, and the irony is that the amount of time is, that is wasted on, I won't, say, I won't say irrelevant subjects, because I think every subject has got a good, solid grounding of, of why you would learn something like that. And it does, it does allow for 
a good broad education. In saying that, um, you know, subjects like life orientation, they do touch on they do touch on finances, but they don't nearly go into enough detail about how people need to manage finances and how finances work. And and the fact that the first insurance salesman that comes to your door when you leave school that's trying to sell you life cover and a retirement annuity, you know, should you take that? So I think our education system, um, and this is where I'm going to get into trouble, from a from a skill, a financial skill perspective, has led us down dismally. And because because we're not getting the information from anywhere else, you end up talking to friends and getting a bit of info from them because maybe they've had conversations with their parents. You know, you you talk to you talk to maybe you know an uncle or an aunt that that might want to open up, but in the main, that skill transfer of how to manage money just doesn't get passed along. Um, and and really, it's like I said earlier. You know, you you this is probably one of the most powerful assets you have to make your standard of living better and to look after yourself and your family. And yet, it kind of goes by a you know, let's go by feel here. You know, just a simple thing, and, and I mean, I can real, use some really good real-life examples, but a simple thing of building a budget, okay? I talk to some 40- and 45-year-old people that have just been mulling through um, their finances. And when I sit with them and I say, right, guys, you need to build a budget. We need to build a budget because at the end of the day, we need to understand um, how money works, okay? It's all very well saying I get a salary of X and I spend Y. But at the end of the day, if you don't understand the meaning of money and and how that money needs to work, um, you're actually going to be um, sort of worse off on, and you're going to live month to month and, and it's really not going to be ideal from a savings or a long-term investment perspective. So it's very, very important you know, to, to be in a situation where you've got um, a budgeting exercise that can work for you. You know, many, many people don't even know how to build a budget. And that's quite scary, you know, because that's kind of the, the basics of kind of, you know, understanding where your money goes every month. And so that skills transfer just doesn't happen. So you rely heavily on incidental stuff. You rely heavily on you doing it yourself and going by trial and error. And yet, if we had a formal structure that could actually, you know, pass these kind of skills along, um, or if we had um, positive conversations around the dinner table at at our family situation, in our family situation, we would be far better off um, and having those skills to be able to manage money far better. You know, I'll, you know, it's quite funny. You always hear that the parent who sends their child to varsity and gives them an allowance, and then the kid, the kid uh, blows the allowance. That's a monthly allowance they've blown in a week. And then the parents jumping up and down saying, geez, I can't believe you spent that in a week. You know, this was supposed to last you a month. And what are you doing? So, well, guess what? Uh, the, 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 this varsity student goes straight back to the parents. Well, guess what? You've never taught me how to actually budget for this thing. So, so I don't have the skill set. I'm, I'm learning as I go along because you never taught me. So, you know, those are very interesting conversations, um, you know, to, to have between people because we expect people just to know about money. But the skill set transfer, formally or informally, is limited. And I think we need to elevate that much higher. There's a massive wealth transfer coming across the world. And if we elevate those skills higher, you know, that can add to good economic growth over time. Um, Daryl, I actually want to, you know, maybe drill down a little bit deeper into that point. You've made it, uh, you know, two or three times already through this discussion uh, to say that we are getting ready, um, not necessarily getting ready, but we are in the process of a larger, you know, 
wealth transfer because you do have a a big section um, of uh, the society um, that is uh, nearing retirement or in their sunset years. And, um, you know, the, a lot of that wealth is going to be passed on to the next generation. Could we quantify, you know, what that looks like? Uh, I don't know what figures you have, whether it's in the world, whether it's in South Africa, you know, just to give us a sense of how big this issue is, um, you know, how big that uh, wealth transfer is likely to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll get to that point just, just to understand why there will be a wealth transfer. So firstly, our population globally is aging. Um, you know, people having less children, there's a much higher dependency of older people than there used to be. So in other words, the sort of population triangle is not a triangle so much more. It looks a little bit more like a square these days. So you've got an aging population which will potentially be passing away at some point. Coupled with that, that population has lived through to two or three of the kind of largest bull markets uh, that equities have run uh, globally over the last kind of 20 odd years. I mean, you know, Stocks have run hugely well. I mean, I know we've gone through COVID. We've had a couple of recessions. But in the main, equities have given you great returns uh, in South Africa and um, globally uh, over the last kind of 20-odd years. So these people have managed to gather a, a large amount of wealth. Okay, It's estimated that in, in the U.S., approximately $84 trillion is expected to be passed to the millennial and Gen X generations um, in the near future. And I'm talking in the next sort of sort of 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. You know, that is an, a huge amount of money that will be passed down um, to a potentially a generation that has had not been skilled in how to manage that money. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the UK um, have also got some of their numbers. I don't have the numbers on me from a, a, a GBP perspective, but they've also got a massive wealth transfer. And, and I know in South Africa, you know, we, we live a very different world. We're a developing country. Um, we've got a very, very uh, uh, small, um, small base of, of really wealthy clients. But believe it or not, there is a significant amount in South Africa that will also be passed generationally down to the next generation for, for those, those people to, to keep going. Um, and, and, yeah, so there, there is this money that's going to be passed. And my big concern is that, you know, it might be past one generation, and if it's managed probably it could be past potentially two or three generations. But with the mismanagement of it, you'll probably find that it'll end up being squandered. Uh, and what could have been a legacy that had been lasted for two, three generations becomes a one-off legacy and someone else beneath you living a, a great lifestyle and, and never worrying uh, about their kids or their grandkids again. And that that's the bit of the worry the bit I worry about. Yeah, there's a lot to certainly worry about, and especially when we're talking about such uh, what you call the such big numbers. And, um, you know, as you're talking, um, one analogy keeps popping up in my head, you know, to say that there is this wealth transfer and there might not necessarily be the skills to handle, um, you know, that wealth when it comes. I'm just thinking about... Um, what typically happens um, in the world of, uh, you know, sports and entertainment, you know, someone signs a large contract, they suddenly have um, a lot of money, but they've never been taught uh, what to do and how to have, um, you know, a, a lot of money. And then you see uh, people go going broke 
um, soon after their professional careers, you know, simply because no one ever taught them how to hold on to and um, build that wealth, even though they were earning in the top one, if not top 0.1% of, uh, you know, people in any country uh, or any society or um, I can also think of lotto winners. You know, a lot of them are said to go yeah. broke in in about three years, you know, simply because just having just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you're going to be keep, you're going to be able to keep and grow that money over time. Yeah, you spot on, um, you know, the professional environment in the form of sports or musicians or whatever the case might be, um, you know, coupled with what you've just said, there is the fact that they also their work life is limited. So what, what they fail to understand is they earn really, really well and, and they earn a lot of money for a very short period of time, but they then have to either find a new career or a new life, um, which won't be paying them as much as, as they would have been paid. And that's probably going to be even more of their life than what the professional sports or musician was. And um, and and if they actually manage that money properly, um, they potentially you know could take the rest of that kind of life quite easy and still have enough to retire from. Whereas, you know, if they if they don't manage it properly, you're right, they can be at 35 or 40, having to restart their career, entering a workplace as a 40-year-old, but you actually like a 25-year-old because you've never worked in a corporate or a, you know, a business because you've been playing sport or being a musician for that period of time. And so it's it's mentally quite draining on on those kind of people to have to step up into that kind of environment. And so, you know, people have to reinvent themselves um, and they have to kind of start again. And, and, and for many of them, it's very, very, very difficult. And as you said, if, they, if they've gone and squandered a lot of that money along the way, they really have to work. And, um, and you find that their, their income is then equitable to a, at 40 years old, maybe with a, a young family, is equitable to a 25-year-old. And they actually struggle with that. Um, we work with a fair amount of professional sports people, and that is probably one of the hardest conversations to say, you're 22 now, you're only going to work to 35 because then your career is pretty much over. Um, you need to make as much money as you can so it potentially sustains you for the rest of time. And then you also notice, you know, as you get closer towards, you know, that the, the age of 30, you need to start looking at another career, you know, so that while you're doing your sports bit or your your musician bit, that you're actually in a position where you need to start looking for for another uh, sort of line of work to 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 have your second life when you retire from that's the, the the sports front so yeah uh, it's very very difficult you know the last point i want to make on that Madiwa, is also a lot of these sports people when they do make it they make it at 1920 and and again they haven't had the skills transfer so you know they're earning millions at 1920 they're thinking geez this is the best thing in the world i can buy whatever i want i can live wherever i want and they go out and they splash the money and and lo and behold they end up in a situation where they they're scrambling for a job at 35, thinking cheapest. If only I could live that life again, I would have done things so differently. We see it a fair amount. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, going through that uh, those glory years and only realizing um, after the career is done that there's so much more that you could have done and should have done. Um, you know, because your career prospects are likely to be what you call this. Uh, likely to be bleak. Yes, you can make a, a pivot, um, as we've seen a lot of people doing. I've actually noticed that uh, there are a couple of companies, and I thought it was an interesting um, approach. Um, I think MultiChoice has started something around that because they are 
running the soccer league in South Africa, the DSTV uh, Premiership. And uh, yeah. I think after a player retires, they're offering um, education, you know, so that uh, those players can go on to have other careers uh, beyond, uh, what do you call this, um, beyond their soccer playing years. It's a very noble mm-hmm. way of doing things. And honestly, um, I can also imagine the fact that um, for a company like that, you wouldn't want to have um, stories of uh, athletes that don't do well post-retirement because it reflects badly yeah. um, on a company like a multi-choice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see it a fair amount. You you know, you, you often see on uh, in the media that, uh, you know, this person that p- played soccer or whatever at this level is now broke. You know, please can someone help them with a the job? And you think, wow, how? You know, how, how did that get to that point? You know, because... You know, you know, we always perceive that these people are paid really, really well and, and they're living the life and um, you know, at no point did they kind of look after themselves. But I think that's very noble from from DSTB and MultiChoice, you know, to try and to try and do that, because, you know, I think there's a there's one thing about the education. The other thing is about a, the mental ability to switch off from being a professional sportsman to um, to a, a business person. Let's put it that way, because it's not as easy uh, as as one would think. Uh, that you can just switch over. You find many of the sportsmen that were high profiled end up being brand ambassadors for certain um, companies. They end up sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, being employed by by some companies as as kind of marketing, and and that's great for us. But remember that that they should be good and famous, and and then they just become a has been, and there's now someone new that's good and famous, and that marketing sort of role kind of tapers down over time because people you know, sort of align with them less because they kind of, oh yeah, that old guy that used to play, you know. So so um there's a new person now that they could sort of uh, you know follow. So yeah, it's it's a very, very difficult uh, place to be in the professional sports environment. You you need to along the way have great mentorship, you know, great financial stability, great financial conversations to make sure that you're setting yourself up for um your sunset years being at the age of 35, um potentially you know, you need to make sure that you, you know, you're getting to a point where, where you, you're making enough money. I mean, we've seen it with some of our our cricketers, um, uh, one in particular that's now, you know, no longer going to be playing for South Africa. Why? Because they want to head overseas and, and make as much money as they can because they realise they may only have five or six or seven years left. And, you know, one can't argue with that because at the end of the day, that's their job. Um, you know, that they're trying to make as much money as they can before they potentially retire. The same way, Madiwa, you and I would do the same. We would actually work really, really hard in our later years to make sure that we we're building up enough money for retirement. So, you know, it's uh, it is an important concept, and and kudos to those guys that have taken it seriously and and had some good mentor, mentorship, um, and some good coaching and and some good uh, good financial conversations. Um, and and I just wish there was more of them because I think we see more more of those professional sportsmen kind of struggling through afterwards than we do making a success of it. Um, Daryl, actually on this point, before we let you go, uh, I want to flip the script a little bit because uh, we have spent quite a little bit of time talking about, uh, you know, uh, people in the world of sports and entertainment, what happens when you have a lot of money that comes to you early on um, and maybe shift it to the other dynamic in the professional world, your traditional professions, doctors, lawyers, accountants, you know, that type of, uh, you know, that type of realm where you spend a lot of time 
your early years are spent learning and then you gradually start building your your earning capacity and then you know in your late 30s and then i guess into your 50s that those are your good earning years you're earning later on in life as opposed to um the conversation we had now where you earn a lot you know very early in this particular case you earn a lot um you know the more experienced you are and that type of thing you did allude to it earlier on that um even in those spaces um there are mistakes that are being uh, that are being made and the conversations aren't as um as fruitful as we would imagine because you would think that professionals are having uh, have the best financial plans the best financial planners and are set um you know for life so i wanted to check with you you know given your experience your traditional professionals how are they faring you know and maybe you could give us a similar analysis of some of the pitfalls uh, that are being made on that end yeah, that's great, Madhu. I mean, this is a space that we work in consistently, so um, I do have quite a lot of experience in it. I mean, it's it's very very interesting. Your professional your professional space is kind of built into two components. The the one is the person that's kind of working for themselves in a consulting basis. So what I mean by that is is that your doctors, your lawyers, um, your professional services firms, in the form of your accountants. Um, to a certain extent, what they actually do is those people are paid really well and they earn really well, okay? But what they often do is they often also live a very high standard of living. And they don't really have an asset base to a large extent that they can squirrel away. And I'm, I'm talking generally here uh, because, you know, many of them are able to build assets over time. But the problem with that is that, you know, you end up with, you know, a, a professional person earning 100 rand a month, for example, and they spend 99 of it, okay, because they, you know, they they want a house in the best area, they want the nicest car, uh, the nicest golf club membership, um, you know, the nicest mountain bike. And what they actually do is, because they're consulting, they never really build up a good asset. And because they're consulting, they don't have a business that they're building over time. You know, I think of a doctor, a doctor relies heavily on a person walking through the door. That's kind of the asset. And if they're not there, the person just walks through the next doctor's door. So it's not like at the end of the day, a doctor's got a book of 3,000 patients that he can actually sell on to someone else for a profit. Um, you know, that, that doesn't really happen a lot um, because, of course, you know, doctors align with people. And, you know, if people doesn't like the new doctor, they'll just go somewhere else. So, you know, doctors trying to buy another doctor's practice are reluctant to spend a lot of money on it. So your people working in that professional environment, and I mean, I alluded to the, the professional sort of accounting firms, they, they're very, very similar to that. You know, they earn really, really well at partner level. And at the end of the day, um, they don't get any shares. Um, they might get some profit share, but there's no real shareholding in the business. So at the end of the day, they need to have a very, very different investment strategy. They need to make sure that they are using their cash flow to build them wealth over time. What I mean by that is they, they earn 100 and spend 60 and save 40, for example. You know, that's a great way over time of compounding your savings investing it wisely and, and building an asset over time so that when you get to retirement age, you've at least got an asset that you can use to live off um, into your sunset years. The flip side of that is those people that are actually working in some corporates and people that are running their own business that actually go out and buy assets. Okay, so I'll use a, a random example, but a person that goes out and buys kind of 10 warehouses um, and and sort of a whole range of cranes, for example, 
Now, that person in their business, when they get to 65, they may not have saved the most money in the world. But what they've got there is they've got a business that's saleable. So they could potentially put the business on the market, sell it for a quantum and use that money to then retire off. Okay, so it's a very different kind of a feel for your professional person being a doctor or a a person working in an audit firm. You know, um, a person working in a corporate, you know, once you get quite senior, you end up in a situation where you could potentially get some share options. And then, of course, you know, based on how that share does on the JSE, you could potentially create wealth uh, with those share options. And many of your senior people in those organizations get get share options uh, on an ongoing basis annually. Um, and of course, you know, obviously they, they're locked in for a period of time, but those vest after a period of time and they're able to create wealth uh, within that organization. So we find very two very, very different kinds of strategies. So so the doctor kind of professional uh, audit kind of person is a very, very big savings um, kind of strategy that you, you kind of embark on to try to build them wealth over time. And the person that's kind of more entrepreneurial or, you know, working for a business that buys assets or in a corporate has got more of a, a concentrated effort around their business. And then once they get to a certain point and they've created wealth, you can diversify that wealth away from their business. So so there's very two very separate kind of strategies that we look at um, when we're dealing with with clients to try and sort of get them to a point of financial independence, because kind of that's that's the point that you after understanding how much is enough understanding, you know, how you're going to make that money and understanding on how to protect that money are the three things which um, which come out like, like tops in, in those kind of discussions. But it's just depending on the kind of professional you're dealing with um, that, you know, the kind of strategy you follow. Also, in your corporate environments, you'll find a lot of people um, are contributing huge amounts to their pension funds. Um, and that makes up a, a good portion of their, their, their retirement portfolio as well. You know, for us, Having only a pension fund is not ideal. You need to be making sure that you have a discretionary portfolio and a retirement portfolio so that you've got a lot more flexibility in respect of uh, diversification, asset class allocation, investment strategy, um, structuring, and those kind of things. It's very, very important to make sure that um, that you've got that kind of view. On the professional side, yes, your audit firms, also big retirement funds. But again, if they don't save um, you know, from a cash flow perspective, they will be in a situation where they only retire with retirement funds, which can be relatively restrictive. And then, of course, your professionals like doctors and stuff working in private practices, you know, for them, many of them get uh, get uh, <laughs> a retirement annuity passed on to them when they leave university and they kind of let it go bumbling along. Um, but but for them, it's more around how do you create wealth from cash flow? Um, that's a that's a critical point around getting to the end result. Because all of these people want to be in a situation where they a understand do they have enough to retire, and then b how is that money made up, and then c sort of how do I protect that money once I'm through that threshold? Because the worst thing you can try and do is get to a point of financial independence and then go backwards and have to carry on working because you need to. Yes, uh, the dynamics of life are very interesting and hopefully, you know, people can uh, get some of those plans in place so that, as Daryl says, uh, you don't reach uh, the end of your working years and then find that you have to, you know, go back, um, you know, to working just so that you can sustain yourself. So that's been it. It has been a very um, educational um, and I think real discussion just around the quality of conversations that um, are being had and need to be had about money and wealth um, in our society. Um, you know, Daryl just talking about the fact that um, we live in an age where people find it very awkward 
to discuss money and we you know unpacked a lot of uh, the reasons why um, and uh, you know some of the awkwardness that's around it and the fact that uh, some of these mindsets are entrenched um, you know over generations and that uh, dismantling you know these types of things is going to take um, you know a huge concerted effort um, his suggestion is to start um, with the family unit and he actually broke down uh, the different ways that um, you know, perhaps the current generation of parents um, can actually teach and pass on some of this knowledge, um, you know, to their children from as early as uh, the age of uh, seven. And then you progress, um, you know, through primary school years, your early teens, late teens, and then into early adulthood, um, encouraging, you know, saving, encouraging earning, encouraging investing, um, you know, that type of thing. Uh, but he does say that a uh, in, in many cases, um, there is a vulnerability that people do need to take on because as a parent, you might not always know you know, some of these things. So you need to also be willing to learn and admit the things that you know and the things that you don't know, you know, so that we can, um, you know, have, you know, these better quality conversations going forward. And the reason why all of this is important is simply because we have um, generations that are building themselves, you know, up to retirement, uh, generations that are reaching, you know, those particular ages. Um, we have transfers of wealth that are happening. And also just at the same time, we have people that need to be able um, to create sustainable lives for themselves and sustainable lives for their families. So that's been it. Uh, we were in conversation with Daryl Coker, who is, um, you know, an advisory partner with a Citadel and, um, you know, very looking forward to, you know, having Daryl again in future, uh, because I'm pretty sure that there's way more uh, that uh, could be unpacked um, in the universe of financial planning. So, Daryl, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Driva. Thanks for the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. And that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight. Remember that you can find our latest podcast on Business Live. That's under the podcast Business Day Spotlight tab on Twitter. We're hashtag BD Spotlight. And remember that you can review and subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you choose to get your pods casted. Thank you to our amazing team. I've been Mudio Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail. And this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight, which is a multimedia live production. So, for myself and the rest of the team, it is good evening, good afternoon, and good morning.